communities. You're listening to the news on RTHK. trend for the last three to five years. Part of financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning, hello, and welcome to the Thursday 9th of April edition of Money for Nothing. I'm Richard Harris. Your business headlines for the day. Mainland shoppers shopped for stocks yesterday as a wall of mainland money hits the Hong Kong stock market, pushing the Hang Seng Index up 4%. First results for the earnings season come, as usual, from Alcoa, the aluminium company, doing a little bit better than expected. The US Federal Reserve publishes their minutes of the last meeting and talk about raising rates in June or September or is it December? As we reported yesterday, Royal Dutch Shell is to buy natural gas company BG Group for a tidy 70 billion US dollars. And in other news, China hits a seven-year high, Japan a 15-year high, Europe an all-time high. Where's it all going to end? And the Hong Kong Stock Exchange became the biggest listed stock market in the world yesterday by value when it rose 12%. Joining us as our market commentator today is Gavin Parry of Parry International Limited. Then we're going to have a discussion about stock trading and how it has changed uh, since I was a boy. Uh, Philip York of Alt 224 Group will lead us through that. And our regular guest host today is Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting, back from holiday with us as our guest host. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Richard. Uh, Peter, this time of year, we're always watching things, data watching, Fed watching. Uh, do you think we actually contemplate our navels too much in the market and don't see the wood for the trees? To a certain extent, um, certainly in terms of focusing on the Fed. But you know what? I think it's the Fed's fault for that. I mean, it's, the Fed has been focused for a while now on language and style rather than substance. So first of all, everyone was looking at these two words, considerable time. Then they changed it to patience and everyone was patient watching. Um, and now it's all about... Um, Will we, will we raise rates and what will it do That's to right. make we're, those we're, rates We're rise? actually counting down the number of uh, members who are going to vote in what particular way. It's like watching the Politburo. And you, and you can't, they still can't tell us, you know, seven years into, into this recovery, you know, what will it take to raise rates? When is it going to happen? What sort of data are they looking at? We still are none the wiser. That's right. Well, lots more on that later. At last, the Hong Kong market decides to join the party, with the Hang Seng Index surging 3.8% to close at 26,237. The market hit a seven-year high. The Hang Seng China Enterprise Index, which is a measure of Chinese stocks in Hong Kong, leapt 5.8% yesterday to 13,397, pretty well doubling its rise for the year in one day. Turnover also hit an all-time high of 252 billion Hong Kong dollars. Both indices are up now between 11 and 12% since the 1st of January. And as an indication for today, futures at quarter to eight were up about 2% in Hong Kong. Some of this trading seemed to be pent-up demand from before the Easter holiday when China expanded the number of fund management companies that could use the new Shanghai-Hong Kong Stock Connect system. The Connect began in November and facilitates trading across the border. The trading link hit its daily limit of 10.5 billion RMB by 2.30 yesterday afternoon. Southbound trading, that's mainland into Hong Kong, topped 21 billion in volume, with the record being just 4.8 billion previously. Northbound trade also did well, as international and Hong Kong investors sought to invest directly into the China market. The Shanghai Composite has now risen 90% in the last 12 months, while Hong Kong's only shown a gain of 15%, almost a third of that yesterday. 
Dual-listed stocks are thought still to be 37% cheaper, Hong Kong against Shanghai, and that may have counted for the better performance of the um, Hong Kong-China uh, Enterprise Index. Uh, Peter, despite this big rise, Hong Kong shares are trading at around 11 times price-to-earnings multiple. That's the share price divided by the earnings per share. 11 times seems to be quite cheap, below the five-year average. Um, is there more to go? I, I think there is more to go. I mean, if you take a stock like PetroChina, for example, you can buy it in Hong Kong at a 40% discount to the price you can pay in Shanghai. And I think if you look at what's driving this, I mean, if you look in the last week of March, there was 1.7 million new brokerage accounts opened in China in just one week alone. That's, that's a record uh, number of accounts. So you have retail investors piling in. You now have domestic mutual funds, which are able to buy Hong Kong shares. And it's sort of feeding upon itself. So... I think it could go quite a bit further. And it seems that it's now because the Chinese have relaxed the ability for some Chinese investors to invest in Hong Kong. That's right. I mean, I, I think in particular, um, you know, the ability of mutual funds to be able to buy through the Stock Connect scheme, which the Chinese regulators started to allow from last month, is, is an important um, sort of factor. And in fact, this, this rally yesterday didn't really come out of the blue. There had been signs that it was building right from the beginning of April when the, the volume, the southbound volume, started to go up. Quite well, we've been forecasting it longer than the second, second coming, haven't we? <laughs> this huge right, we? <laughs> gap between China and, and Hong Kong. Um, now, the Hong Kong index currently at 26,237. 10% on that pops us over the 30,000. Hmm. And it's not much after that, then we're looking at the all-time high. Do you yep. think we're going to get there in this, maybe in the next couple of months? It's possible. I mean, the market is, you know, is obsessed with big round numbers. So it loves things like 30,000 on the Hang Seng, just like it, you know, it loves 20,000 on the Nikkei and, you know, 5,000 on the Nasdaq. So it's quite possible that, you know, that's a sort of psychological barrier that investors are going to try and take the market to, regardless of whether, you know, there's real fundamental um, reasons for doing that. So, yes, I, I think it's more than possible. Good. Well, we'll be talking uh, more Hong Kong with our guests. But first of all, Europe was down across the board yesterday. But after a series of rises over the last few days with the stock uh, stocks index, Euro stocks index, closing 0.7 down at 3,743, Wall Street saw, saw a small rise on the back of the Fed news to 2,082. Currencies are pretty quiet. Euro at $1.08, uh, the yen's at 120.15, and sterling's trading at 148, which is 11.52 to the pound. Oil actually slipped uh, as much as 5% last night, with Brent crude currently trading at uh, $55.50. The most recent news this morning were the earnings results from aluminium company Alcoa, which beat Wall Street forecasts. The company is traditionally the first to report in the season. Alcoa reported first quarter earnings of 28 cents a share. Expectations were 26 cents a share, but reported lower than expected revenues. Uh, the stock actually ended the day down 3%. Royal Dutch Shell did the deed in buying BG Group, as we uh, flagged yesterday, uh, lifting them to the second place in the oil company rankings and turning them more into a gas company than an oil company. This is the largest deal in 2015 so far at US$70 billion, US dollars, double the size of the merger of food giants Kraft and Heinz. Chief executive of Royal Dutch Shell, Ben van der Burden, sounded quite smug. I think we have been, as you said, looking at, uh, at BG for, uh, for a long period of time on and off. It was always a, a match that really worked well in our minds. 
two companies coming together. If you look at what integrated gas or LNG and deep water could be if he would combine the two, add to that the capabilities that we have as a leader in two areas, this was always going to be a fantastic combination. Uh, now, what happened over the last months, of course, was that the macro environment evolved to a, to a point that not only was this a great logic, but it also became of very, very compelling value. Well, a big question of our age is when are interest rates going up? The US Federal Reserve published minutes of their last meeting, but in some ways we're not that much wiser, although some of the members are now saying June. Tony Crescenzi of PIMCO runs through what the Fed is looking for to actually put them up. The Fed's making it clear again that it will be up to future data. It did tell us a little bit about how high the bar is and what it wants to see. And one of these things is some stability in oil and the dollar, two things that have concerned the Fed of late from, from different perspectives. And uh, there is some of that, but of course the Fed will need more time. There, there is some language in here that suggests, and New York Fed President Bill Dudley today said there is a scenario where there could be a hike in June. In fact, several suggested, in, according to the minutes that they that they wanted and favored a hike in June. Several, mm -hmm. according to a 2005 note from the Fed, means numerically probably four or five of the 17 or so participants in the meeting. So it's not quite enough right. to get over the, the bar. Well, four to five against 17. Remember that they still need a majority to vote in a rate rise. Not a man to sit on the fence. Our old friend Chris Rupke of Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi UFJ has his usual rant. But Rupke is a very close Fed watcher, so his view is quite serious. His point is that the economy is moving fast and the Fed have been far too slow to raise rates. He seems happier with this new indication. Several members saying June is pretty direct and tells us the market was too quick to take June off the table. The economy is nearly at full employment, where in theory the Fed funds rate is supposed to be in neutral, 3.75%. It will not be there, of course, something to do with the aftermath of the Great Recession and financial crisis, Yellen says. But we tell you one thing, the Fed better start down the road to neutral, start the normalization process with the first rate hike before we get to full employment. Rate hikes are coming, bet on it. Well, Rupke has been saying this for a while, but it looks like it might just be right, Peter. Well, I, I think there probably will be a rate hike, but I, I think not as much and not as fast as maybe the market is expecting. I, I think the Fed had its big chance last year to raise rates when the economy was going gangbusters, employment was good, and it's now in a situation where it's got to raise rates when the economy is starting to slow and potentially employment is starting to slow. Not a good position for the Fed to be in. No, it does look as if maybe they've left it a tad too late. Anyway, it's... Uh just uh, past 8.13. So let's bring in Gavin Parry, Managing Director of Parry International Trading, to talk about the markets. Good morning, Gavin. Uh, morning. So the, the Fed minutes, we saw them today. Um, the Fed seemed to throw almost everything into them. They mentioned Greece, they mentioned oil, they mentioned China, they mentioned the dollar. What is it you think that they're, they're, they're really most concerned about and are looking at at the moment? Well, we actually want to be a little contrarian here and, um, and take a step back. <clears throat> Obviously, there's a dual mandate here, which is full employment and price stability. We, we uh, still keep the contention that it's very much the price stability side of the mandate that the Fed is uh, concerned about. And when we say that, it's more about the debt side of, uh, of the equation or the balance sheet. Um, and, and that's in relation to the disinflationary environment and the outright um, deflationary environment that a lot of the global environments uh, are seeing at the moment. And one of the aspects here is that is the Fed needs an inflationary environment to allow the probability of current debt to roll over at maturity. And, and without that kind of 
environment and situation within the economy, given the, the bloated balance sheets of debt and the, the large issuance of debt that's gone on in the prior years, there's actually a, uh, let's say, a systemic risk that, that some of this may not be allowed to roll over at maturity, which, which obviously would under, uh, undermine the whole aspect of economic growth in the US. And isn't that the problem, that really there's too much debt in the world now? So whenever the Fed tries to raise interest rates, we haven't seen the world deleverage since the financial crisis. We've actually seen around about $60 trillion added to the, to the debt level. Does this put the Fed in a very difficult position? Well, quite, quite correct. Um, I mean, some may say it's actually also <laughs> instilling why they actually exist. Um, and, and given that we have a debt-based monetary system, um, it, it's quite imperative for them to, to ensure you know, continuity of, of the system in its own right. And, and Yellen particularly making mention of things that, like you just mentioned prior, of you know, uh, Chinese deflation, you know, particularly at the, farm, at the factory gate level, uh, base commodities being low, oil being low, and particularly mentioning the US dollar, which you know, if, if anyone asks the Fed a question about the US dollar, they always refer and say, well, that's a treasury matter. The fact that she's actually mentioning it only instills in us that that it's the fact that they don't want to be importing deflationary pressure um, and, and that they're actually looking at the fact that they don't want to, um, uh, as I said, um, uh, you know, um, circumvent any, any aspect of creating an inflationary environment, which basically is, is beneficial um, to, to help um, you know, maturing debt roll over, because obviously in a, in a deflationary environment, cash is king. So I won't ask you the question that everyone's asking, um, you know, when will the Fed raise rates, because I don't think the Fed knows themselves. What, but let's suppose they do do their quarter percent rate hike sometime this year. What happens after that, after the first one? How, how quickly are we likely to see rates uh, normalise, if, if at all? We still believe that there won't be anything this year. Um, and if there is uh, some kind of a tightening, it'll be very token. And, and that'll basically uh, go towards, you know, uh, satisfying the hawkish elements um, on the Fed or in the economy. I mean, even in the minutes themselves, there were some people saying, look, no, no rate rise out of, out of the, the total members. I think you, you need to defer to, to basically the, you know, the, some of the orchestrators, including Bernanke, where last year he made a comment at a $250,000 charity luncheon uh, per plate. Where, where he made, made you know, quite firm that he sees no rate normalisation in his lifetime. And again, I think this follows back into the debt side of, of the equation and how things have ballooned and, and how they're, they're quite conscious they need to create an inflationary environment. It's very much like in Japan trying to create inflation and, and to a lesser extent what's going on in, in, in China as well of, of basically trying to curtail a disinflationary or an outright deflationary environment in the economy. But Gavin, don't, uh, the only reason we really want deflation is because it'll uh, inflation de- deflates our debt away, if you see what I mean. If we have a lot of debt uh, and we have inflation, the debt becomes smaller. But uh, surely just 1% or 2% deflation is not really a problem, just as 1% or 2% inflation is not a problem. True. No, 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 true. And, and that side of the coin is also that's actually um, it's a positive for consumers. I mean, uh, you know, if we're, if we're actually, the systems are running on behalf of, a, of, of, of consumer satisfaction, well then obviously prices falling only benefits consumers but then you've got to realise that all central bankers at the moment are from the Keynesian theory point of view, which, uh, you know, Bernanke very much being a, a student of, of, the, of the Great Depression, their, their greatest fear is the liquidity trap of, of the fact that monetary policy becomes impotent um, to influence uh, in investment decisions and, and that's, a, that's kind of folding back into the aspect of defining Inflation is very much demonised uh, by central bankers because of this aspect. And, and another country that's concerned about deflation is, uh, is China. We've seen since, uh, since November the PBOC start lowering rates and, and ignite a fire um, under the markets. It looks like, doesn't it, that Chinese investors are at last sort of getting an appetite for Hong Kong shares? 
Well, totally. I mean, again, this kind of folds into the fact that Hong Kong's got a pegged uh, currency with the U.S. So while while there's basically um, uh, you know zero um, interest rate policy, this feeds back into Hong Kong. But also, I think a lot of this rally is very much a reform premium. I mean, last week we saw very much a bit of a catalyst. You, your, your prior person made a comment about this that this has been building and it's it's kind of starting. Last week it was all the reforms of the stockbrokers that were able to actually now do things cross border. So you saw a lot of the the dual listed stockbrokers and, and investment banks that actually made a lot of those tickles up last week. And, and this is very much a, a bit of a reform peer, premium, uh, you know, we, we think. But if you cast your mind back 10 years ago, it was 2005, 2006 that we saw this last big rally for the Hong Kong and broke up through 30,000. A lot of that, again, was very much the China story coming to the, to the, to the front. And uh, a lot of that was due, obviously, to the IPO aspect of, of people getting involved and stagging and making quite easy returns. But and, and particularly if you were Japanese investors, it was a bit of a bane because of mobility and capital sucked out liquidity from the Nikkei, and that was on a rally at the time, and, and a lot of that seemed to go into the HSI. But this time around, it, it feels very much the same kind of way as 10 years ago, where you've now got a catalyst of reform and opening, uh, particularly on the cross-border side and, and on the liquidity in the flow side. But also, isn't there a worry then that when you have so many retail investors and, and fairly unsophisticated investors sort of piling into the markets, that that's you know, going to create a bubble? A lot of this is being done on margin and that you know, we could once again in China be heading for a big fall if this all goes horribly wrong? Well, I mean, that's just part and parcel, I think, of the markets. I mean, it was, a, it was only a month or so ago that, that there was a lot of comments coming out that basically, um, you know, you know we, we, were, we were breaking new... Well, actually, it was only a week or two ago that we broke new records in relation to margin. I think it was a trillion remimbi that was actually out there now as allocated as, as margin in, on the liquidity side of things. It, it is basically part and parcel, I think, of markets, and given the fact that they are public markets and the, and the public can access them. So, um, you know, it's, it's based, definitely becoming the flavour. It, it is the flavour. Uh, but again, it, I think it's very much to do the headline reform story. Um, and, and as prior comments on your show were, that, you know, you've got now got more access to these markets that were very limited prior. And that's definitely going to create a catalyst to, um, to basically, you know, have a bit of a Pied Piper effect. And it looks like we're going to see more of the same today. Thank you very much, Gavin, for joining us. That's Gavin Parry, Managing Director of Parry International Trading. Well, if you want to listen to Gavin again uh, or any other stories on Money for Nothing, you can find all of our podcasts on the RTHK Radio 3 website. I was born in 1990 and have grown up with the basic law. Over the past 25 years, I learnt about one country, two systems, and gained a better understanding of mainland Hong Kong relations. I witnessed our return to the motherland and the successful implementation of the basic law, which provides us with unique strengths. With the basic law, I believe Hong Kong will continue to be prosperous and stable, forging ahead towards a brighter future. The 25th anniversary of the basic law promulgation. Well, when Peter and I were fresh-faced young graduates on the trading desks, uh, most of our colleagues were occupied by, or most of the seats were occupied by well-lunched men in stripy shirts and red braces. They'd phone up their friends to check prices, move their own prices up or down to suit the market, and then go off for a long and often liquid lunch. But globalisation and technology has long changed that model, with massive trading desks of people uh, just disappeared, uh, destroying a whole swathe of very highly paid jobs. Those traders in their red braces have been replaced by banks of computers, and these computers are programmed to react on different price movements, uh, different volatilities, uh, and also even pieces of news. Uh, 
The computer programs that drive them are often called algorithms or algos and are one of the key topics in trading today. They're programmed by technology geeks such as our next guest, Philip York, who is CEO of Alt224, the technology trading company. Good morning, Philip. Good morning, Richard. I know you don't mind me calling you a geek. <laughs> no, not saying I run a monthly geeks night. <laughs> yeah, you do, and very good it is too. Um, tell us about algorithms and, and uh, how they've come into the markets and where you think they're, they're going at the moment. Well, like you said, a lot of it's not really changed. It's just that it's all become automated. Uh, we have large fund managers who are looking to execute large orders. Now, they can look to uh, get block orders, go to dark pools, or if they go to the lit market, uh, they need to somehow hide what they're doing and so we have uh, traders who uh, are often proprietary trading groups trading their own money and they're going to try and seek out that liquidity so really it's just a big game of hide and seek so what the algorithms do is is basically look to direct money towards different areas or are they formulas that enable people to trade first well there are many different types of algorithms. Uh, myself, uh, I'm uh, more involved in the higher time frames, and so. What do you my- mean by that? Well, uh, high frequency I'm, I'm, trading. I'm, sorry. High frequency trading. Well, the high frequency trading is more where you're down uh, trying to get your orders executed. So if you're a large fund manager, uh, you'll then look to execute your large order by breaking it up in little pieces. That can be called an iceberg order. That can be done at random times and so on. And then the market makers on the other side can be looking to seek that liquidity out by trying to put those pieces back together and see what trends are being done. And they trade against it. If they've got a large order in there, then they're uh, going to want to uh, ignite that, push it to a higher price and then sell back to make some uh, to make some profit so philip historically it's been the investment banks that have been the providers of liquidity to the market but with more regulatory requirements capital requirements and they're sort of pulling back aren't they and we're now seeing these algos step into the breach what what sort of sort of percentages in say a market like the u.s are, are algos now accounting for of, of the overall volume it seems to be getting higher and higher um well it did have a a, a very high peak but Uh, With the arms race, we have had a large consolidation and um, more disclosure and the fund managers themselves uh, wanting to get control of the algorithms. We're finding large fund managers actually building their own infrastructure into the exchanges uh, or using third-party providers to get access to that uh, direct exchange uh, access. So um, the, the... the problem we find with a lot of complaints from fund managers is where they're still bringing knives to a gunfight. So the fund managers are now uh, tooling up and uh, we're all out there with machine guns <laughs> uh, so, fighting each other. So when the algos are in charge, as opposed to the traditional carbon-based units that used to take part in the markets, is, is there a risk? I mean, you know, can, can this liquidity suddenly be withdrawn and that, that maybe is what causes... Well, it's a free market, so it, it just means that it moves fast. The liquidity could always... Uh, could always be withdrawn. So um, uh, the issue that some people ask is what happens when the whole market uh, gets automated, I I suppose, is is the end game. But um, 
you're still going to have the man in the street is going to make his decision if uh, he gets excited about the market going up or he gets concerned about the market going down. He's going to ask uh, his uh, fund manager for either his money back or he's going to go subscribing. Now, the fund manager might be wanting to buy the market because he sees it's a good buying opportunity, but if he's got redemptions on his books, he's still going to have to sell. Now, whether that is implemented uh, through electronic trading or manual trading is neither here nor there. But sometimes these algos, there's a big debate going on about whether it's a good thing, whether it's a bad thing, whether high-frequency trading is adding to the volatility or not sort of in the market. But what is the it that people are concerned high-frequency trading about? is generally uh, reducing volatility because they're the people buying the dips and selling the rallies to make, uh, make the market. Uh, uh, it's the fund managers who come in there and they're wanting to buy large sways because lo- uh, lots of people are subscribing to their funds and so on. Uh, that actually increases the volatility. So where do these flash crashes sort of come from? We saw one in the Treasury bond market sort of in October or so sort of last year. Was that sort of, you know, fund managers sort of jumping in or was it the machines or a combination of them? Well, the carbon-based units, as you mentioned, uh, we, we uh, uh, tend to have more introspection and if things are getting silly, uh, we can stick our hands in our pockets. And I often had uh, back in the uh, 80s and so on where brokers would, uh, with my orders, would stick their hands in their pockets. Now, the, um, and, and by algorithms. that you're meaning that um, if you've got a person there, then they can, if you like, override what would be programmed and uh, make a different decision. So if Correct, was setting, and decide not to execute buy. my order. That, that's right. Uh, whereas some uh, the algorithms, especially going back a few years, because a lot of the markets only uh, started getting automated around 2007, and they, they don't have the intelligence in the algorithms, and so that's developing. How, how fast can this get? Because you know now um, firms are locating their servers right next door to the exchange, or in fact in the same or buildings the exchange, as the exchanges. Yeah. Yep, to, to try and speed up things. Are we almost at the peak now of how fast this can get, or, or where where more can we go from here? Oh well, I'm I'm not going to re- really get uh, caught up in 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 the arms race discussion. You know, we can uh, get into quantum computing, which is um, uh, still in the research labs, but. Um, uh, the, the big issue is that as long as we've got a level playing field is really what we want. For example, one of the issues people have talked about is the risk controls and uh, the bro- you know whether the brokers should have the risk controls or the exchanges have the risk controls. Well, really, the high-frequency traders aren't so concerned uh, about an extra uh, few microseconds being added to the timing of the matching engine as long as everyone entering the market is on the same uh, level playing field because we can build the algorithms uh, to work with different levels of latency. Well, thanks very much, Philip. It's obviously going to be uh, enormous change. We've seen change in the past and uh, enormous change in the future. So uh, we'll have to come uh, back to you at different times as uh, as the market moves on. Uh, that's um, It's Philip. a very exciting marketplace, yes. Very exciting, I think. Um, Philip York, who's CEO of Alt224. And just before we go, a quick look at the Asian markets, how they're opening. Um, Austra- uh, the Nikkei is opening up about half a percent. Australia's flat and Seoul is pretty flat as well. Uh, and just another indication on the Hong Kong future is up uh, 2.13% um, at the moment. Um, Peter, I've been asking most of my guests this week, looking into the next quarter, we started with a complete bang, haven't we? It looks as if it's going to be a good quarter unless um, we have a Black Wednesday or Friday somewhere halfway through. Are you 
just as bullish? And are we actually going to end up in bubble territory? I think here in Hong Kong, I mean, you know, certainly if you look at the volumes, this is this is great for someone like Charles Lee, who must be delighted to see his exchange now the the largest one in the world by Mark Cap, and it's good for brokers as well. It remains to be seen whether it's going to be good for investors. Yes, well, that's all, always the thing. Well, thank you very much, listeners, for uh, joining us on Money for Nothing today. I'm Richard Harris, and the weather, the northeast monsoon, is bringing cool weather to the north coast of Guangdong. It'll be cloudy with one or two rain patches, cool in the morning, and the maximum temperature will be about 20 degrees during the day. Moderate to fresh east to northeasterly winds. The outlook will be one or two rain patches tomorrow. Uh, the temperature currently in the Hong Kong Observatory is a rather cool 17 degrees, and the relative humidity is 90%. And now the news, read by Todd Harding. The chief executive, C.Y. Leung, says the government has no plans to introduce anti-independence laws following reports that the administration was planning to table a proposal in June. But Mr. Leung warned that people need to remain vigilant over the idea of independence because Hong Kong's relationship with the mainland isn't good. Executive Councillor Regina Yip says the administration is concerned there are signs that a separatism movement is growing. Such sentiments were certainly non-existent. More than 10 years ago, when I was handling Article 23 myself, the idea of Hong Kong independence to the great majority of Hong Kong citizens is really quite ridiculous, and it's not feasible. But such sentiments are clearly uh, giving rise to concerns and may even be becoming pretty offensive to certain people. A Filipina mother is due to appear in court later, charged with neglect, after her 15-year-old daughter jumped to her death from a flat in Repulse Bay on Tuesday. The 53-year-old woman is also charged with overstaying her visa. The girl's father, who's British, is on bail after he was also arrested earlier this week on suspicion of ill-treating the teenager. A jury in the United States has unanimously convicted a 21-year-old former student, Jokor Tsarnaev, of carrying out the 2013 Boston Marathon bombings. The 12-person jury took a day and a half to find Mr.